Well, it's great to be here, and I'm telling you, I texted a friend of mine who's actually a mutual friend of Stan's and mine, and I said, I, I think I am beginning to have a pastor-to-pastor cr- crush on Stan. Now that he said he had five kids, wow, that's just amazing. We are going to talk about families today. Anytime someone comes from afar, anytime you do a series like this on Family Matters, you go, great, because nobody has a perfect family. And uh, sometimes we think that the people from up here have a perfect family. I don't. Uh, I came from a dysfunctional family. My dad was an alcoholic. My two brothers are alcoholics. My father, or my grandfather on my mom's side was an alcoholic, so it was basically a dysfunctional family. Uh, On the very first day of college, I was sitting in the nerd section, back where you people are. Yeah, you know who you are. Look at that. They raised their hands. And there was this beautiful woman in the second row, right where this beautiful woman is. And I said to my two new nerd friends, see that girl down there? I'm going to take her out on a date. And they looked at her beauty, and they looked at me, and they they laughed. You said that way too fast. You're too close to this face. But they did laugh, and I think they said, right. Well, one week after college graduation, we got married. And we're just about ready to celebrate 46 years. So there you go. Now, that kid from a dysfunctional family married this girl from a even more dysfunctional family and we thought it was going to be great we were both the first generation going to college the first generation to be christian in our families and we thought it would be great because we were christian we had no idea the first year of our marriage it was horrible um, i was a youth pastor in a church in yorba linda california and we would argue on the way to church and then i would talk to the students about the joy of a christian family feeling somewhat hypocritical here but we made a decision about one year into our marriage And that decision was to be what we called the transitional generation. You know, the Bible says that you inherit the sins of a previous generation to actually the third and fourth generation. So I wasn't an alcoholic, and Kathy wasn't as crazy as her family, but we were inheriting that bent. And so we decided that we would either recover or repeat, right? And we decided to recover. And I want to tell you that it's one of the most important things I've ever done it. Tonight at 6.30, I get to speak to your students, which I'm excited about. That's what I used to do, speak to students. And one of the things that I'm going to tell them is that when I was 16, I made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and that was the most important decision I ever made. One of the second, third important decisions was that Kathy and I would try to recover. Now, fast forward the illustration, but I've got a daughter named Christy who, when she was 17, she was the president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes in our school. She was one of the leaders of our worship band, but she was driving us crazy. Uh, Anybody here ever have a teenager that drove you crazy? Okay, look at that. The beautiful woman in the second row. There you go. And um, anyway, she was driving us nuts, just nuts. And one day, I came home from work, and Kathy and Christy were in the kitchen, and Christy was talking to Kathy. It really wasn't a mutual conversation, and I did what any good passive-aggressive husband, father would do. I stayed in the other room, and I just listened. And Christy is saying stuff to Kathy that is not good. And I'm thinking every so often, well, that's kind of true about your mom, but I I wouldn't say it that way, you know. Finally, she totally escalated, and I, I walked in, and I said, Christy, you need to go to your room. Now, my dad was kind of a rager and and kind of a screamer. I'm not. So I just was really quiet. I just said, you need to go to your room. And I'll be honest with you. I thought she was going to turn to me and say, you are most blessed, Dad. It's Mom. But instead, she turned on me. And as Stan said, I've written a few parenting books and will be speaking about creating a media-safe home here in the afternoon. And yet, I wanted to stab my daughter with a plastic fork in her knee. I was so frustrated with her. She slammed the kitchen door. The sign went crooked and it says, bless this house, and we just left it crooked. 
And uh, I went up and talked to her, and I said, you know, Christy, some of the things you said about mom are true. Well, you know, she's 17. She's like, cool, dad's on my side. I said, however, <laughs> I never want you to talk to my wife like that again, ever. She was like, wow, I mean, you're, you are married to mom, aren't you? Yes. Hmm. And I said, you know, we've never told you this, but long before you were a sparkle in our eye, and there was a little bit of sarcasm in that sparkle, uh, long before you were a sparkle in our eye, uh, we decided to become the transitional generation. She'd gone to a Christian school. She knew her Bible. I said, you know, the Bible says you inherit the sins of a previous generation, third and fourth, whatever. She knew it. And I said, so we decided to try to break the chain of dysfunction in one generation. And I said, you know what? Your mom has done a great job. In fact, your mom is the person, and I would say this if Kathy was here, I believe this so much, who has grown the most. I've never seen a woman grow as much as my wife. And I said, so your mom starts here, and she's growing to here, but the pain of dysfunction that mom has gone through, that she's broken in many ways, not perfect, as you well are aware, and the pain that I've gone through, not perfect, as you're well aware, but that, that's on us. And so she recovers so that, Christy, you can start someplace in the middle and you can go farther than mom or I ever will. And Christy's eyes welled up with tears. I wasn't yelling at her. I was just telling her a statement. She got it. She knew it. She gets it. She knew her mom by this time. Funny enough, today they're best friends as adults. But the point I want to say to some of you is through the whole Family Matters series, sometimes you say, but, you know, you don't understand our family or you don't understand the hassles we have or the, or the struggles that we have. No, all, all families are broken in one way or another. And I know I need to get to the scripture, but let me quote Disney, Lilo and Stitch. This is my family. It may be small, it may be broken, but it's still good, see? And I think a lot of us can feel that way. So what does Jesus have to say about family? What does Jesus have to say about relationships? Now it's interesting, when we talk about communication, that I learned pretty early on that communication is not something that you just inherit, but it's a learned trait. So what I want to say today as we look at family matters in different areas, this just happens to be my section today, but I want to take a look at, well, how do we learn to be better communicators and how do we learn to have a better relationship? Now, you may, may be married, you may not be married. You may have kids, you may not have kids. You may be a, be a per, but you are in a family, wherever you are, see. And Jesus speaks to it in not just words, but in actually one of the most, well, I would call it one of the most controversial scriptures, but for most of us, we never see this as controversial. But I want to take you to Mark chapter 10, and we'll start at verse 13. And at Mark 10, 13, Jesus actually makes a, re a remarkable statement, and a re he makes, well, an action step that's remarkable for the day. So Jesus is with his disciples, and actually it's up here on the screen, and it says this, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, they didn't rebuke Jesus. In fact, they didn't rebuke the children. They rebuked the parents. What's amazing about this is 2,000 years ago, and this is where it gets radical and where we don't understand this sometimes, is that 2,000 years ago, they didn't bring children to, to rabbis. And they didn't actually even bring women to rabbis. And this says parents were bringing children to Jesus. So right there, that's a big deal. And as they brought children to Jesus to have him bless them, 
what did the disciples do? They did what all disciples would have done of every rabbi 2,000 years ago. They rebuked the parents. Don't bother the rabbi. Ha! Huh. What Jesus does, and see, sometimes we forget that Jesus gets angry. And in this piece, he says when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. So in other words, he was hacked. He was mad. He wasn't mad at the parents. He wasn't mad at the children. He was mad at his disciples. So you have tension among the troops. See? It goes on to say, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now again, I'm going to let Stan one day unpack this scripture. It's an incredible scripture. We'll hardly touch it. But what Jesus said, no, is let the little children come and don't hinder them for actually the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He goes on to say, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he did a most remarkable thing. They didn't do this 2,000 years ago. The children came and he blessed them. You know, today in the midst of the COVID pandemic and whatever, we're just getting back to, to touch. And they're saying how important that is. And I'll get into that in a bit. But, you know, today when I saw Jimmy Scott, he came out, he put his hand out. And, you know, there's always that awkward with COVID. There's, do, you, do you touch them? Do you put your mask on? Do you put, take it off? What do you do? But, you know, he, he, he gave me a handshake. He blessed me. Many times when we see our family and we hug, you know, we bless each other, say. And so what's fascinating about it is Jesus did what others would not have done in that day, and he blessed those children. Now, I want to take you over to Mark 9. So we're going backwards in the scripture today. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus said something very remarkable. And I actually think he was with the same parents and the same children. But listen to what he said in verse 36 and 37. He took a child whom he had placed among them and taking that child in his arms, which again was a huge thing for a rabbi to do. And he said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. That was blasphemous in that day. Because in some ways, what they misunderstood him to say was when you welcome a child, well, the child is God. No. What he was saying is when you welcome a child, you welcome me, but not just me, but the one who sent me. So for you who are parents, you who are grandparents, I just have a book out called uh, Doing Life with Your Adult Children. Keep your mouth shut and the welcome that out. Um, pretty much summarizes the book. But in one of the points, what I'm saying is for, 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 for parents of adult children, and as you begin to have grandchildren, no, the legacy continues in a big way. And really, you're welcoming Jesus. Now, I know some of you had teenagers. You would have wanted to trade your Jesus with somebody else's Jesus for just a few days. I get that. I get that. But that's a remarkable statement. He went on to say something in verse 42 that sometimes we don't like to quote Jesus because it makes it, him sound so, well, angry, but this is what he says at 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who, who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So in other words, you know, when God gets angry or when God shows emotion, a lot of times it's toward children either being abused or stumbling or, or whatever it might be. That's the power of this. If you think that you know, your job as a soccer mom or a hockey dad or a grandpa or a grandma isn't a big deal, I got news for you. It's a huge deal. If you're in children's ministry or youth ministry, student ministry, I got news for you. It's a big deal when you welcome a child. And that's what's cool about this church is that this church is very serious about you know, welcoming kids, children, welcoming students. And in that I think they're, they're doing the work of God. So I want to go back to the scripture that we just read, and I want to take a look at, at each 
point. There's three for me. And the first one is found in verse 14. And it says, let the little children come. So Jesus said, let the little children come, right? And so in other words, you bless children with your presence. May I say this loud and clear? Presence matters. Now, it's not like your kids ever come up to you or even sometimes your grandkids come up to you. In fact, last week I was in Greensboro, North Carolina. I live in Southern California. And uh, my wife was watching the two grandkids. We have three, but the two grandkids. And she said to Charlotte, who was very busy doing some artwork at three, and I am one of the closest human beings in her life. I mean, she, I love and adore her. She loves and adores me. And she said, do you want to, fa- Grandpa's on FaceTime. you want to talk to Grandpa? And she said, no, not now. <laughs> And I was like, my heart was like breaking. And finally, I you know, convinced her to talk to me, and we had a good short talk, and she went back to doing her artwork. I get it. But what I find is that, sure, your kids want money. They want different things. But what they really want is your presence. And presence matters. I call this the power of being there. You bless them with your presence. In fact, Studies show that children regard your very presence as a sign of caring and connectedness. You're a grandma or a grandpa. I see some of them in here. And there's this amazing thing that Al Gore invented in 1984 called the internet. Or at least he said he invented it. And what's amazing about it is you can, even in a long-distance relationship, you can still be present at at, at special times. But presence matters. So power of being there. I was thinking about my mom, who has now passed away, and... Mom understood innately that presence mattered. She never went to a seminar like what we're going to do today on creating a media safe home. In some ways, she didn't have to when I was a kid because we just had a long phone cord and they'd make me you know, stop in the middle of the night you know, from being on the phone with you know, a girlfriend or whatever. But today, it's confusing. The greatest new users of internet pornography are boys ages 12 to 17. Girls are right behind them. When kids will see internet pornography, all kids is age 11. So you know, today, it's, it's, it's a different world. Uh, I'm one of these folks who have had the privilege and also the horror of having to come to schools during when there's mass shootings like what you had this week. And uh, not that this was at a school, of course, but uh, at schools, and I would kind of do mass therapy for the kids and assemblies and things like that. And one of the things that we see is that all kids, and they're mainly kids who do the mass shootings at things like this, young men, typically, they have a, a relationship with the internet, and their relationship is with pornography, and their relationship is also with, with incredible, incredible um, amount of, you know, shooting and, you know, that kind of deal. They're just mirroring, we'll talk about this today, not in a negative way, we're going to talk about how do we help our kids, but they mirror what they've been involved in, see. And so what's fascinating about this is that what we've done today is we've kind of broken relationships sometimes because now kids are so involved in, in media or whatever it might be, and, and relationships matter. Power of being there. My mom, back to her. So mom was uh, dying of lung cancer, and she was uh, laid out in bed, and she uh, was in hospice at this point. And I would go most every day. She, they're about 45 minutes away from where we live. I live in a place called Dana Point, California, and they lived in Sill Beach, California, which is about 45 minutes. And sometimes I would spend less time with mom than I would driving. Right? But you do that when, you're in, you know, when somebody's in hospice. And I would just sit there. And this day I was sitting with mom, and she was pretty much out of it. It wasn't going to be probably much longer. And uh, dad was watching a baseball game. And I was just sitting there, and finally I kind of look at my watch, and I go, well, it's probably time to go. And, and uh, just at that point, my mom said, Jimmy, where's, where's your dad? 
And, and I said, well, he's, he's watching a baseball game. That's what he does. Um, he's watching a baseball game. Do you, do you need him? And dad was doing some amazing, you know, medical health care for her at that point. Incredible sacrificial. And she said, no. And then she sort of went back to sleep. So I'm there for about another, you know, 30 seconds or so. And I start to kind of get up. And she looks at me, and she's agitated again. And she goes, where's your dad? And so I said, well, he's in the other room. Let me go get him. And she goes, no. I said, he's watching a baseball game, Dad. Or, Mom, it's not a big deal. And she said, you know, I never liked baseball. And I went, Mom, you never liked baseball? Did you ever miss a Little League game of mine? I don't think so. Did you ever miss a Pony League game or a junior high game or a high school game? I played American Legion. Did you ever miss American Legion? My brother actually played for the Indianapolis Indians when they were with Chicago. He was a major league catcher, went on to Chicago. He played in Sarasota, Florida, Lynchburg, Virginia, Indianapolis here. I said, remember when you bought a shortwave radio and you would listen to Bill's games? What do, you, what do you mean you don't like baseball? That's what we do. My dad, scout for the New York Yankees. What do you mean you don't like baseball? This is a baseball family. This is crazy. And she goes, no, I never really liked baseball. She said, I went there to be with you. You know, she would go to my practices and she would knit. It used to embarrass me, okay? But she was there. And so what she understood innately was that your presence matters. And so don't expect your kids to say thanks. I never once said to my mom, thank you for coming to my games, and now I treasure those times. See? But presence matters. Jesus said, let the little children come. He, he welcomed children, and that's what we do. You want to have a healthy family? Then you welcome your children. You welcome, you welcome children. Be a church that welcomes children. Families matter. We have a phrase at Homeward where I work, and it says, when you reach the family, you reach the world. That's the way to reach the world, is to reach the family. They don't care if they're Republican, Democrat, Christian or not. If you care for the family, that's going to make a difference, see. So you welcome them, you, and, and, and presence matters. Secondly, and I'm going to skip those great scriptures that I said that Stan couldn't look at one time, and I want to take a look at verse 16. Verse 16, Jesus did that so uncommon thing when he, when he welcomed a child and he placed his hands on them. Remember that scripture? At 16, and he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. So like we said earlier, when you, when you welcome someone by touching them, you bless them. It's a form of blessing. In the scripture especially, you see the patriarchs and the matriarchs bless children, bless people all the time, transfer the legacy if you would. And, and what we see here is we bless Children, we bless families with affection. Affection matters. We probably don't talk enough about this in the church, but affection matters. And what I mean by affection is I'm not talking about false affection. I'm not talking about, well, like say if you had a 13-year-old boy. I'm not saying that what you do is you kiss him on the lips in front of all of his friends. No, they would think that's gross. You give him a noogie. Okay, that's what happened to my hair. My dad gave me noogies. This guy's head too. Your dad gave you noogies, or your wife gives you noogies, or somebody, but... There you go. But you know what I mean is, is that, no, affection matters. In fact, there's a study done at UCLA, and it comes out that 8 to 10 meaningful touches a day, and this is what's hurt with COVID, is that there are people in assisted care living and whatnot that aren't getting touched, and, and they need touches, but it's the same with even kids. So later today in the, in the evening, I'll speak to the kids here at Venture. And there will be some, and I know they've just had a study on this or just done a series on this in terms of dating and sexuality and all that stuff. 
But what's fascinating about it is some of those kids are sexually promiscuous, not because they want sex, but because, again, they crave affection. They're not getting it. Let's say you came from a family like I did where my dad worked hard. He made good money and he, you know, he, he provided for our family and that's the way he showed love. But he didn't say I love you and he didn't do a whole lot of, of that. Well, maybe then you take on that banner. And what I'm saying to you is there are three words. Get over it and show and shower affection. Your grandparents, you can do that with your grandkids in ways that are even goofy compared to what the parents can get away with. See? But you shower them with affection. So part of my job is trying to help kids. And, and we're, we'll talk a little bit about this at the Creating a Media Safe Home seminar, but it's, it's trying to help kids have healthy values, moral values, especially when it comes to sexuality. Today it's a weird, confusing world, right? And I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Purity Code. Today it's the best-selling book for kids from a Christian point of view on, on healthy sexuality and making a good decision. In honor of God, my family, my future spouse, I commit to sexual purity. It's a cool, it's a cool thing for kids 10 and over. And so people always want me to kind of fix their kids. And this one woman uh, calls up and wants me to talk to her daughter who was 17. And to, just to be blunt, I know we're in church, or we're in a living room, but we're in church. And uh, she was caught in the act at 17 in her parents' room in the middle of school. She and her boyfriend were there. Both mom and dad work. Uh, mom comes home from work unexpectedly, and there she is her daughter. So now they're in my office, and the dad is angry, and he's telling me the story that I just told you in greater detail, and it's shaming the girl, I could tell. And she, the dad, in his anger, called her a bad name, and that wasn't going well. And the girl really never kind of looked up at me. I could tell this wasn't going anywhere. So... I said to the mom and the dad, would you mind stepping out for a bit? I'd love to talk to your daughter. Well, again, I have three daughters. So, I mean, again, we've had no hormones or drama in our life. <laughs> right. So with my daughters, I would sometimes see their eyes roll. Well, I didn't see this girl's eyes roll because she wasn't looking at me, but I knew I got an eye roll on that because she didn't want to talk to some bald-headed nerdy guy about, you know, her experience. She's not even looking at me, so I just, the parents were gone, so I just kind of went like this. And I waited, because I knew she was going to eventually look up at me. And she did. And I went, that was rough, wasn't it? I meant what her dad had said. And she said, yeah, but, you know, what I love about students is that they're so honest, because she said, well, you know, it's true, and it's not the half of it. They don't know it all. And then she said something that was amazing. She said, I used to be close to my dad. And her eyes kind of welled up with tears. She said, you know, but I'm not, not as close with him now. And he's the one who had taught me how to play tennis. She was an all-California state tennis player. We'd talked about it in the conversation. And he's the one who would put me on his lap and do this little horsey thing, and then we kind of laughed about that because I said, I think I got that with my girls too. And, and she said he would read to me, and then she looked at me really seriously. She said, Jim, I didn't even know if she knew my name. She said, Jim, when, when I, my dad would come home from work, and wherever I would see him, I would come running up to him, and he'd lift me up, and he'd say, how's my little princess? And then when she said the word princess, her lips started quivering. And then she sort of put herself down and said, well, you know, and then I guess I'm not his princess anymore because of all this. I pretty much had heard enough. We sort of bonded a little more. I said, can I bring your parents back in? And she didn't want that, but parents came back in, and I said to the dad especially, but to the mom too, how's your relationship with your daughter? I mean, what's it like? And he said, you know, we used to be close, Jim. 
In fact, you know, I'm the one who taught her how to play tennis as if I just hadn't heard that. I'm the one who would, you know, put her on my lap and I would do this little horsey thing and the girl and I looked because was, he was being very goofy about it. And then he said, but you know what? One of the greatest things in my life was when she was little, you know, I'd come home from work and she'd come jumping over a couch or she'd come around a bush or whatever it would be and I'd lift her up and I'd say, how's my little princess? And then his lips started to quiver. I, I, I think we had quiver, you know, hereditary lip quivering going on here. And then he kind of put her down. He said, then she kind of copped an attitude and I guess it hasn't been as good. And I looked at that dad and I looked at that mom and I said, my friends, if, if you don't shower your daughter with affection, appropriate affection, there are hundreds of boys, and I looked at her and she was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous, and I said, no, there are thousands of boys who would love to hug her with inappropriate affection and more. See what I'm saying? So a family that has affection, as we look at family matters in this series, families that thrive are families where they, you practice presence. So you, sometimes you come to church or you're online, and you know, the guy talks about it, and you go, well, we do this. Well, good, keep doing it. It's working. It doesn't have to work that second. It's not going to be perfect. There's no family that where you, everybody stands six feet off the ground or six inches off the ground and, you know, walks around like they're in heaven. It's not, you know, a sinner married another sinner and you had sinnerlings. I mean, that's the life. So move from thinking that, but know that those are, are key deals. It was that great theologian, Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, who said, when you've strayed away from the basics, you've gone a long ways toward defeat. These are the basics of a healthy family relationship. And some, there's some students in here. You need to hear that too. Okay. So presence matters. Jesus showed us that. Also, affection matters. Now if you go to Mark chapter 9, where we looked at before, Jesus had made that incredible statement, which was actually, you know, something that he could have gotten in big trouble with, and he probably did. This was probably some of the things that really caused some of the leaders in the synagogues to be frustrated with him. Because he took a little child whom he had placed among them, and taking that child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. So in other words, when you welcome a child, like I said, you welcome God. And so you bless children by placing spiritual deposits into their life. May I say this? It's not the job of the church to do this. Now, it's the job of the church to come alongside you. We have another phrase at Homeward that says where I work. And it says, one of the purposes of the church is to mentor parents and grandparents, and the parents and the grandparents mentor their children, and the legacy of faith continues. That's what your church is doing with a seminar or with this family series deal. The church comes alongside us, but we take the responsibility. We have over 3,000 hours with our kids, and the church has, what, 40 to 80 hours a year. And so it's our job to place spiritual deposits into their life. And I know that I can't place spiritual deposits into the life of my kids in a good way if I'm running my life at too fast of a pace. Let me just meddle for a moment. See, I think that one of the biggest problems in America is this breathless pace in which we live our lives, see. And so we're overcommitted and underconnected even with our primary relationships. What are our primary relationships, God? Our marriage, if we're married, our, our children. Sure, we're there, but are we present? And, and do we have the ability to, to, to give them you know, spiritual connection and spiritual deposits? So Jesus 
says, no, you, you are blessed bless them by placing spiritual deposits. He, he is saying that as he says you welcome children. See? And so sometimes we don't put enough energy into that particular part of it. I graduated from, uh, in grad school, I went to a school in Princeton, New Jersey, and when I was leaving, I didn't stay because I wanted to be a youth pastor so badly, I drove across the country with my wife, new wife, and um, uh, not same wife that I talked about with Kathy, I just thought I'd better get that straight, but she was relatively young at that point. And uh, I didn't stay for the graduation. A friend of mine named David, who today is a pastor in North Carolina, and he said, dear Jim, we, we missed you at graduation. Uh, it was great. Just came ran across this phrase. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. That was a long time ago for me. But you know what? That was prophetic for me. I wasn't going to be in the arms of another woman. I wasn't going to embezzle money and all the other weird things that sometimes you hear about, you know, pastors. Not that every pastor does that. Most are just incredibly genuine and lovely. But what was going to happen to me is I was going to be so busy doing important things that I was going to miss the most important things. And what I want to say to some of you is if you want to have a good family, you've got to say no to some good things to say yes to the most important things. What are the most important things? A right relationship with God, a right relationship with your loved ones. See. And so we need to put time into that, and we need to put, place spiritual deposits. What's one of the least developed areas of intimacy in a marriage? Spiritual intimacy. I mean, we have physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, but you know what? It's spiritual intimacy. I know for Kathy and I, that was a big deal. And, and a number of years ago, we were, you know, I mean, we would pray, and Kathy was, I'm, back then I was in student ministry, and so she'd be involved with, you know, working with girls, and I'd be with guys, and we're in groups, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it wasn't like we didn't pray together, but we didn't connect like I wanted. Intimacy. Intimacy means connection. And so one day we were with some mentors of ours who were older and wiser, and I said to them, what do you do for spiritual intimacy? And they said, we spend 20 minutes a week kind of reading scripture, praying together, and praying for our family and whatnot. And I wanted to go, 20 minutes a week? That is so wimpy. And then I went, well, we're not really doing that. I mean, we would pray at dinner. We would do certain things. We would, there'd be moments here and there. So we went on to talk about parenting stuff with these people. And as we got in our car to leave, as we're pulling out of the driveway, Kathy said, you know, I really want that. I said, What? She said, I really want that 20-minute thing. Well, what am I going to say? I mean, you know, I'm in ministry. Uh, no. So I said, no, that's great. I just don't want to do another Bible study, and why don't you take the lead on that? <laughs> okay, that, you can see where I am. And she said, as a matter of fact, I will. And I said, well, we need a time. And she said, how about Sundays at 9? And I went, that's a weird time. But I went, okay. So that next Sunday, I was watching the Lakers game. You have to understand, that's a big deal in my life. And I'm a big Lakers fan. I hear there's a team here called the Pacers, but I've never heard of them. And, um, and so the Lakers are playing. And all of a sudden, Kathy comes up, sits next to me, and she takes the pause button. Oh, that's just tough. And she, paused, she puts the game on pause. I said, what are you doing? And she said, we're going to have our, our spiritual time. She goes, I'm going to call it closer time. I think we can draw closer to each other and we can draw closer to God. And I went, Okay. Because, you know, it was just on pause. And, you know, we'd already said it was going to be quick. So she pulled out something that was inspirational. She read a scripture. We read this, she read this story to me, which was cool. We prayed. I mean, this is not bad. It wasn't like I was taking bad medicine. But, you know, I was also interested in the game. When we were done, I said, are we done? And she said, yep. 
And I went, and I watched the game. And the next week we did the same thing. And the next week we did the same thing. And all of a sudden I realized maybe six months, maybe a year into it, that the discipline of having that time had changed our relationship in a good way. And that when you pray together and when you have what we call our closer time, that it really does change things. I don't remember what I ate three weeks ago, but it nourishes me for today. It's the same with that. And, and so for us, part of placing spiritual deposits in the life of our kids and other people, part of that was that we needed to have you know, closer time. We've kind of laughed because today one of the best-selling books, marriage books, is called Closer. It's a book Kathy and I wrote. And, what's, and you don't have to buy the book because people don't say much about the book. What they say is it's the 20 minutes. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of discipline. Hmm. So it's the discipline, it's the intentionality that causes us actually to draw closer with our families and closer when it comes to the spiritual side. None of us feel equipped in that area, especially because we live in the family, so they see our worst. But really, the call is to do that. So we're called to play spiritual deposits. And, and, and there's a phrase that I just can't get out of my head. A woman said to me one time, untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. See. In fact, this woman told me this at a, something I was speaking at a big Gaither gathering here. And uh, they used to meet, the Gaither crowd would meet and bring like 10,000 people in this. And I was speaking at this thing and she said, I have a word for you. Untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. And I went, whoa, that's for me. So we've got to tend the fire within our own life. Now there was a, there was an earthquake. You know, we have our earthquakes and we always have stuff going on everywhere when it comes to, uh, you know, tragedies or whatever. But there was an earthquake in 1989 in, in what was then called Soviet Armenia. And this was an earthquake that shook the entire country. And actually people said that everybody in Armenia knew someone who had died because of the incredible amount of people who died from that earthquake. And there was a story that I'll never forget. It was a story about a family that felt the, the, the shake and the earthquake, and they all ran out into the street. I'm not sure that's what you would do if you lived in a place where there were earthquakes, except for places like Armenia, because the, you know, the cr house was going to crash. So they get out, and they, they start just you know, doing a holy huddle, so to speak, the mom, the dad, three kids, and the one son is at school. And so they're, they're, they're covering each other, and they watch their house go down. When it was done, and it was a rolling earthquake, so it took a while, all, both the, all the kids and the mom and the dad went, Armin. Armin is the son who was at school, so the dad took off running, and as he was running, he remembered that he had said to his son over and over and over again, maybe you've done the same thing, I will never leave you, and no matter what happens, I will always be there for you, Armin. Right? So he's thinking of that, and he gets there, and the school is just, there's no school. It's just crashed. You can see some kids from afar, and they're, where do you go when you're in trouble? You, you run home. So the kids are running home. Some are hurt. You know, it was mass chaos. But where Armin's class was, it was deathly quiet. And so the dad did what you would do as a dad or a mom, as a grandma, a grandpa, an aunt, an uncle, whoever. You, he started just going through the rubble. He did it for four hours. Finally, the police and fire said, you know what, you've got to stop, sir, because you could get hurt with this. We're, we're going to eventually come, but basically they're saying these children here are probably dead. We'll get to them, but we're trying to work on this side of the school. And he said, no. I said to my son, no matter what happens, I'll always be there. And so he kept doing it. Again, this, this is 
documented. He did it for eight hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours. His wife came and said, honey, you know, let's rebuild our house. Let's mourn the death of Armin. He said, no, I'll find him, even if he's dead, and he probably is. All of a sudden, he hears a voice, dad, is that you? He said, Armin, Armin. He said, dad, we're we're, we're in kind of a hole, and there's seven of us. There's a couple of people who are hurt, but I had said to them that you would come and save us because you always said no matter what happens, I will be there for you. And Armin was saved. Our God says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I want, to know, I want you to know that within your family, family matters not just to you, but family matters to God. And sometimes we make it too complicated because we make life complicated. But this is a beautiful story of how Jesus did relationships. And I think some of us could do the same. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you so much for a wonderful church like Venture that cares for families like it does. And I pray, God, that as we think about this message today. Is there something that we're to do or to be that can help our family? What is that, Lord? Speak to our hearts, and even as we sing, may you be the way maker, not only in our life, but in our families as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, and everybody said, amen.